This is the At YouTube.com podcast for September 4th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Enns. On this episode, we've got a conversation with Brian Betteridge, Aaron Garvin, and Eric Gifford from the At YouTube team talking all things vinyl. They discuss equipment, rare releases, the new colored vinyl editions, and take questions from fans on social media. Before we jump into the vinyl discussion, I want to let you know that you can find links to items we discussed in this episode at goodstuff.fm slash atu2 slash 95. And if you're not already subscribed to the At YouTube podcast, you can find the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you currently listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by your local intellectual tortoise pet shop, with a reminder to not get squashed crossing the tracks or get high-rises on your backs. All right, guys, it's really great to finally be talking to you. I know we haven't you know, been ha- had a lot of opportunities to chat with each other, but uh, this is going to be a really great time for us to talk about uh, vinyl and U2 stuff and all of that fun kind of collecting uh, sort of stuff, I guess. I don't really have, for lack of a better term there. So uh, I'm, you know, my name is Brian. I'm over here in Philadelphia. Um, it's really nice outside. I kind of feel bad that I'm inside right now and it's such a, a nice time outside. But uh, Eric, how are you? Hey, Brian. Good. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am in sunny Sacramento, California today. And, uh, you know, things are pretty warm around here today. So an afternoon uh, inside for a couple of hours while it's 90, 95 degrees outside is okay. Uh, Aaron, how you doing? Hi, I'm really good. Thank you. It's great, as you say, to speak to the pair of you at long last. And uh, what a better, what better subject can we speak about the vinyl? So, yeah, the, over here in England, the weather's been a bit patchy. As usual, you know, the typical British weather, we have rain and sun all on the same day, and it's pretty much been like that this afternoon. Um, so it's, the evening's just drawn in close now here in the UK. Um, I guess it's nice and bright where you are. It's really bright over here, although I have to say I didn't hear about it being 90 in California. I'm feeling a little better about it. I thought it was hot out here today, and it's only about 80. So I, <laughs> but a little perspective for me, I feel a little better now. Right. That's good. Let's talk about vinyl. Yeah. So um, I guess maybe we'll start, I guess, in the beginning. Um, how did you guys get started in vinyl and U2 vinyl specifically? Well, for me, this is an interesting one. So I'm age 51. So for me, I'm of that era where when I came into my late teens, CD started taking over uh, for me in terms of my music collection, just general purchasing and music collection. So, But when I grew up, I mean, to be honest with you, everything that I used to buy would have just been on vinyl, you know, whether it was a seven-inch single or a or a uh, or an LP. So I bought a few cassettes, but not too many. Probably around the time when the Walkman came out here in the UK. But pretty much that's how I started collecting vinyl. It was really the only format to buy, so I had no other choice, to be honest with you. But I've continued to buy vinyl uh, very much through to to current day state, although much less vinyl than I would have bought back in the day. I mean, you know, only really a few acts that I, I collect uh, vinyl for now, but very pleased that vinyl's made a resurgence. What about you guys? Well, um, that is interesting. You know, you point out the your age. I'm, I'm 34, um, and so there's definitely that generational consideration here. I have been collecting for about four years. It was something that 
I always knew that I could probably get into and because I'm kind of a collector type of a person. So I kind of almost avoided it to, to not have to like be pulled in. Uh, but then, you know, my wife, uh, generous as she has bought me a record player for my birthday. And I walked home when I uh, walked in one day and, and she was playing. It was uh, just after Songs of Innocence came out. And so she had bought a record player. She bought Songs of Innocence and, uh, you know, so I felt like, okay, I have permission now. So then I, I jumped in. And of course, being a huge YouTube fan, that was uh, kind of where I started. So it's been about four years. And uh, it's it's fun. You know, it's a little bit of a vanity in the sense that I can get all my music on Apple Music. But I was always a CD collector, too. I loved, you know, opening the brand new CD and reading through the liner notes as a teenager, spending a lot of time in my room. And so, you know, it's kind of gets back to that sort of more tactile experience with with vinyl um, and experiencing your music, kind of focusing on it. So it's been fun. That's actually pretty similar to my own, although I feel like I fell into it, almost fell into it backwards. Um, I had gotten to the point where I was much more of a digital person. I had you know, I had a lot of CDs, and then once when iTunes became more popular, I was like, "This is fantastic! I can you know take my music with me anywhere I want to go." And what prompted me to buy my first vinyl record was, uh, I think it was the 2014 Record Store Day, and it was it was Songs of Innocence when that limited edition mm. Songs of Innocence came out with the white sleeve and all that. Um, I remember because I loved when that that cover with just the plain white sleeve with the little record label in the middle. And I was really disappointed when the album actually came out and it had the picture of um, Larry and his son on it because I thought that other cover was just the perfect cover. So I had no intention of actually listening or collecting vinyl, but I wanted a physical copy of that album cover. So I waited in line to get it and I bought it and it sat on my shelf for about a year or two. Um, and then, you know, the next one rolled around and I was like, that was fun. I'm going to go do it again. And I started to collect vinyl and I had about, you know, five or six or something like that before I decided, you know, it would be a smart thing to actually get something to play this on. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But um, then I was, that was kind of what pushed me there is like, I've got, got this pile of records i should start to listen to them and and then i really started to enjoy it like eric said you know the tactile experience was fantastic and you know being able to look at liner notes again i guess i had forgotten um how much i missed that um until i got the uh the records and i also i have to say i liked having larger booklets too some of these records come with these gigantic album size booklets instead of the little tiny cd sized ones and it's a little easier to read and easier to look at the pictures and i i definitely enjoy that um but aaron you said you have you collect a, a few different artists just out of curiosity like how much of how much of your record collection is you too um well i reckon i've got in terms of vinyl if you take seven inch, twelve inch singles and LPs, I've probably got about three and a half to four thousand items. Of that, I'd say around a third of it is U two related. Um, so I've, I mean, you've got to bear in mind, I, I haven't bought all of those personally. Um, a lot of them have been inherited from parents and whatever. But I mean, I, I do collect quite a lot of different artists in any case. And I don't mean in recent times. I mean, I've always like bought, you know, a specific type of artist. So David Bowie was always one of my favorite artists that I used to buy when I was 13, 14. I'm talking around the time of Scary Monsters album back in the early <laughs> 80s. It's interesting what you've been, you guys have just been discussing because I guess I have a slightly different relationship 
with with vinyl to you guys, be, only because of my age, obviously. In that, as I, as I mentioned in the intro, is that for me it was just a normal format. You know what I mean? It's just like a standardized uh, standardized way of listening to music. And it was a it, it was then something around 1988 that I've formally dropped. You know, I I, I wouldn't have gone out and bought um, an LP as a matter of choice as my first you know first and only way of listening to it. Things like U2 and whatever, I would have, I would have, you know, because I was, I was collecting U2, I would have bought the LP and cassette as well. But certainly, in terms of the first choice of matter, it was CD for me. And and to be honest with you, it still is kind of really my my preference of listening to to music is CD. Albeit that you, you know you do tend to rip it and download it into uh, into into a digital format. But we've all got different different ways of listening to music, I suppose. But yeah, my, my vinyl collection is, is is quite large, I suppose. Um, I, the, the nice thing about my collection is, to be honest with you, I've always played my music. You know, always play music, so, and I've always always had a record player of something or, or, or of another. Um, back in the back in the nineteen eighties, when I was at university, I'd have just had a a standardized hi-fi kit, you know, with the record player on the top and then you used to have a twin deck cassette recorder in the middle, you know, your little graphic equalizer, mm-hmm. um, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, that that I pretty much about 10 years ago stopped listening to music that way and then would have just gone straight into iPod and the likes. But now uh, most of my music, I, I really just tend to listen on, on vinyl again, to be honest with you, because I guess – as everybody's so interested, you, you, it, there's just this great resurgence and the quality of the vinyl is so much better as well. But, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a little while. What about you guys? I mean, do you, you know, you, you mentioned when you were, you know, when you grew up, I guess CDs were predominantly the only way of buying music pretty much in a, in a U.S. record store. They were. I don't even remember being able to buy cassettes except for when I was really little. Um, it was all CDs and even, and then I, then we kind of went into that streaming era, but I, I'm happy to say now I don't really have that many CDs. At some point I got rid of all of the CDs that I owned, except for the U2 ones, which I just kind of kept from my collection at this point. Um, I don't really know exactly how many I have. It's probably about 200 or so. And I would say that U2 is approximately half of that. Um, and I liked how you said something about, you know, you have them to listen to. And I think that's really great. I'm really like, I don't, really believe in the idea of necessarily buying a record so that you could keep it sealed or that it just sits on your on your shelf there is only one album that i have not opened yet and ironically it's that record store day songs of innocence that i started out with and it's i haven't not opened it for any specific reason i guess i just haven't ever gotten around to it because not long after that i got the the regular white vinyl version and i listened to that and felt no need to but i will eventually open that one because i think vinyl is uh meant to be played and i'm i still have a few that i haven't gotten through yet i have a little bit of a backlog and uh i can't wait to to get through them um eric how many do you have what's your collection like um i'm probably pretty similar to yours i i um I think that YouTube probably is about a third of my collection. So I'm probably somewhere between 150 and 200 records that I have. Um, YouTube is the only artist that like I've, you know, have made an effort to get every, you know, as much as I can that within reason, you know, I have, I guess everyone has their own limits. Like it is an interesting sort of psychological question on 
what you you need or what you want to include in your collection. I mean, I know Aaron's collection, I think he sent me a while back his spreadsheet on his impressive collection, which is, you know, what I would feel like is, you know, something to aspire to a completionist, you know, sort of uh, collection. My first goal was just to get every album on, you know, 12 inch, uh, every main studio album. And um, that was right before, I think I hit that right before they were started doing these more recent re-releases. So I did get Zuropa, an original version of that. Um, But then I kind of felt uh, that was a a gift that somebody got for me, thankfully. Um, And, but then I did get the, you know, like the, the reissue of Zuropa. Um, And then they made it easier from then on. Cause I think, uh, I think, you know, like the 2000 records from all that you can't leave behind uh, on then when they kind of re, re made it easier to get those um, made it easy for me to collect that. So I have this kind of psychological like conundrum where, especially like with the colored releases, I'm like, I've already got it. I've already got it on a good format. So do I need it? I don't know. Maybe somebody will get it for me for a gift. <laughs> so like, that's where I'm at. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to, if I'm going to do it, but a part of me just wants to do it you know, be at Aaron's level. So I just uh, am grateful to be able to associate with you, Aaron. Cause you know, like that's like, uh, I just want to like look, come through and like leaf through. I need to go to the UK and leaf through your collection because I think it would be a lot of fun. Oh, you're very welcome to do so. I mean, you got, put it, I mean, put mine in perspective in any case. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I started buying U2 records from early 1983 when, uh, New Year's Day came out. I didn't buy New Year's Day the very first day it came out. It probably was about two or three weeks before, um, by the time it had charted here in the UK. And pretty much from, from then on in, I've bought every single or LP or whatever release, pretty much on the day of release, stroke the first week of release. And of course, in the UK, that was U2's main record contract. I mean, although they had a they had a, a, a an Ireland only uh, contract for you know for the country of Ireland. It was Ireland Records in the UK that was pretty much where they were releasing their records and 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 also limited also to the rest of Europe. So I've never had to kind of do a, a backwards collection. All I ever had to do really was anything that I wanted prior to New Year's Day. I I I just bought, so I didn't have to had to make an awful lot of effort because. I was just buying it in real time. You know what I mean? I haven't, I haven't had to go back. So most of my focus initially was really just getting the early singles, not not um, out of control and another day. I mean, I'm on about 11 o'clock TikTok and a, a celebration, bits and bobs like that. And to be honest with you, it wasn't that hard to buy them either because I would actually see them. Um, I always remember buying a celebration probably in – in late 1983, just saw it in the record store, just on the shelf. You know, it, they 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 were um, obviously quite popular in the UK at that time. They had number one albums or whatever. But my my record collection has just been something I've just picked up over the years. I haven't really made a had to make a special effort in terms of collecting the the really old stuff, overseas stuff like American records and promos for the UK and. You know, rare covers that you know you'd only get in New Zealand and Australia. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. It was only around the time eBay came along, um, probably in the late nineteen nineties that 
that gave me the access and the opportunity to say, crikey, I've got to start collecting this in earnest. And that's really when my collector mania, mm. if we wanted a better phrase for you to, then started taking over. And the internet as well, you know, plenty of great websites out there which help you uh, collect music as well. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that, uh, you know, uh, for, for the longest time, record collecting has been kind of a, a, a geographical thing. You know, there's those who love imports from another country. Um, and But now that it's all online, you know, you, you, you kind of have to, like for me, I have to kind of set some rules for myself because I could just go online and then I could just order anything that I might want. But for me, like I kind of have a little bit of a limit where I'd rather find it somewhere in a shop uh, and, and uh, just enjoy kind of the hunt that way. Um, otherwise I just, you know, could just like keep going and going, uh, you know, with things that are on eBay. So I think everybody's a little different how they approach it, especially when you're at a certain level where like, you know, that's the only way you can find new things or the things you really want. Um, but it's fun to do that kind of physical hunt. I agree. That's my preference as well. Um, part of it is because I really want to be able to see the record that I'm buying first, um, just to make sure that it's, you know, it's not damaged or scratched or anything like that. But I also, sometimes I also don't trust, um, shipping not to damage it or the heat not to, to warp them. So I always prefer to do that. I love going to my, my dad and I, every couple months we go to one of these area local record expos where it's just this gigantic room full of maybe 50 different tables and vendors selling just crates and crates of, of records. And some of them are, some of them are marked some, most of the time though, it's just uh, big boxes full of uh, just a catch all of anything. And you have to spend hours just hunting through them. And I really like doing that. Unfortunately, it makes it really hard to find U2 stuff in there. For the most part, all that I have ever found available to places like that are those common ones from, uh, I guess, the early to mid-80s, from Boy onward up to, I guess, the Joshua Tree, uh, where everybody had copies of those albums. They were pressed because that was the most popular uh, medium to listen to them. So there's hundreds of them everywhere, and I already have those. So I, you know, it's been harder for me to find something like an original Zuropa or an original Octung Baby or something like that, um, because they're just not always available. I guess here in the United States, as much as they might be in England or something like that, or also just because there aren't as many of them. Which, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there one of the Ask at You Two questions uh, came in about that, right? Um, let see if I can find Yeah, yeah. that's right. I think it was um, – so let me just have a look. There was a question, wasn't there, from somebody. I think it related to the um, – or that you can't leave behind album. Yes, yeah. Like why well, is it well, harder well, to well, find well. an original of that than, you know, an original yeah. of War or October? Uh, and, you know, Absolutely. feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I guess, you know, like I just said, all those things were released quite – frequently and there were quite a few of them but all that you can't leave behind and that era was released at a time where um you know there weren't that many albums made and i guess they were just made just to for in small amounts for a few you know people who collected it and if you got it you got it um do you guys is there does that sound about right you're absolutely right uh, absolutely right because i mean probably the late 1990s probably about 1998 through to about 2002 Records really weren't even seen in 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 the ironically record shops anymore. Um, it really was just predominantly CDs. Cassettes also as well uh, went into the same decline. So it became a, an absolute niche market, to be perfectly frank. And it would only really be major acts like the 
you know, the, the likes of the U2s and whatever, anybody who charts, where there would be a very limited release of, of vinyl. Because to be perfectly frank, it wasn't the optional, it wasn't the premium choice of people listening. And, of course, the demand was so low that I guess record companies themselves would just make a loss just even bothering to, pr- to, to, to press and get the artwork done or whatever. There just was no demand there. I've also heard that those uh, pressings may have, like, because, because of those things, that they may have been uh, quality issues and that some, maybe they weren't pressed as diligently as they are now. Is there, do you know, Aaron, do you have to know if there's any accuracy to that? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right as well there because the, 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 the actual vinyl itself was down to as low as 110 grams. You know, the, we're, we're well used now to the, the modern records, you know, being pressed on 180 grams. But even back in the day, you know, most records were about 130 to 150 grams. So the quality of the vinyl and, and the grade of the vinyl wasn't wasn't so good for um, for a lot of the, um, you know, albums released in the late 1990s and the early, early parts of the millennium. And, of course, the other thing as well, a lot of the albums are quite long in length, aren't they, in some respects? You know, not just U2 albums, most albums. You know, they went from the 40-minute you know, A-side, B-side that you used to, you know, most bands used to record before CDs. And, of course, as soon as CDs came along, there was the opportunity to record a, an, an hours-long album or even a, a 75, is it 78 yeah, minutes? Yeah, close to 80. I can't quite remember now. Yeah. And of course, things like all that you can't leave behind, and uh, how to dismantle atomic bomb, even pop, they're all released in their original format on vinyl on a single LP. And of course, it's compressed, isn't it? So you know, the more the more uh, the more grooves on the record. To be honest with you, it's it's not a good thing. So yeah, I think the sound quality certainly isn't as good. And to be honest with you, uh, guys, I mean, I've tested that. I have actually been nerdy enough to test that out, and. I would never have played my original pop albums or my All That You Can't Leave Behind album at all, to be honest with you, until, until the last year or so, um, really just to compare it with the, you know, with the re-releases. And sonically, it's miles different. It really is significantly different. So I think the quality of the, uh, the LPs, not just U2 LPs, but LPs in general at the end of the, uh, at the start of the millennium, the end of the 1990s, was definitely inferior. And it, I get it with demand. You know, most of the pressing plants would have closed down. All the equipment scrapped and melted down, I would have thought. My impression was that somewhere in the 70s, kind of mid-70s, with like the petroleum sort of shortage, they started thinning. And any, I mean, any original records I have from like the mid-70s onward through before the modern era are much thinner. Um, and so then you combine that with, you know, the the lack of, you know, the of the market for vinyl in the 90s. So as far as I understand, I think Octune Baby through like maybe um, uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb are kind of the the rarest original pressings to find. I think the Zeropa pressing that I have uh, is... Um, it sounds horrible. It's really thin. It does not sound great. I only think I listened to it once and I think it was like $80 or something like that. And I think like there was a pop original pressing, a double vinyl, um, that one and like all that you can't leave behind, I think are the ones that I've seen that are the most expensive that can, can, can get upwards of a hundred once between a hundred and $200 for original versions of those. Um, but then they re-released these on the newest, on the newer versions and they sound so much better. And so, uh, 
if you if you you know one, one getting back to what we were talking about before as far as you know Aaron starting because of where he was in his life and, and being able to record or buy records at that level one of the the tips that I kind of picked up earlier on that somebody told me was just you know just start with your favorite artist was what they're releasing now enjoy it and then you know you can throw things in as you can but I think it can you know for true collectors you can feel like a real sense of pressure of having to do that um, but you start with you know where it is now and, and pick up from there and know that like Aaron was just explaining the quality today is really great so if you you don't have to you know, feel the pressure to go to get those original releases. For some, it's just fun, um, but you're going to get good quality today. Yeah, all that makes me feel uh, better, I guess, about not wanting to or not being able to find some of those original pressings because uh, I'd rather have an album that I can listen to and appreciate. And I feel like if I were to, you know, spend $100 on an original Zeropa or an original Octung Baby that doesn't sound as optimal, I really wouldn't enjoy it. And then at that point, it just becomes, I have it to have it. And um, I don't find that quite as enjoyable. Uh, I do have a couple of those um, uh, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, they're kind of the shady uh, colored vinyl Octung Baby and, and Zuropa albums that kind of came out of Europe a couple of years ago, you know, um, that I think maybe I picked up for about $10 each, which I really, I just got because, you know, I thought that the colors were cool. Um, and, you know, if I'm going to be doing having an album just to have it because it looks cool, I'd rather only spend about 10 bucks on it. Uh, and maybe one day I'll, if, when I have a nice office, I'll be able to uh, hang them up and maybe they can become decoration. But uh, I definitely am okay. I'm, I'm perfectly fine not being able to find those and just go in with the more modern ones that sound better. I mean, I think I think what's also helped with the vinyl remastering as well is you two obviously recorded all of their albums, you know, and they've, they've been recorded very, very well. You know, Steve Lily White, Eno's, all those guys. They've they've used some very high quality kit all the way back down to Wimble Lane. You know, when 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 Wimble Lane opened all of the original master recordings have been very, very good. So they've had a, a much easier job to uh, remaster them. And Scott, is it Scott Cedillo who's been doing the recent remasters on the I vinyl? So. That, uh, he he's done a He's done a splendid job. But, of course, that, I guess the task must be made much more easier if you've got some good quality master tapes to start off with. And to be fair, you two have done, very, have done, a, you know, done a very good job over the years. I've been really happy with their new remasters that they're not all just mastered for loudness. You know, they've kind of gotten away from the the loudness wars, I guess is what you call it. And um, they're really all the, the way it sounds is really nice. Everything stands out really well. And, um, you know, sometimes I do prefer, like, I think for, you know, boy in October, I actually do kind of like the original uh, versions a little better than the remasters, but then like the Joshua tree, I think the way that the way they remastered that, it sounds way better than it did with the, I do have an original copy of that and I definitely prefer uh, the one that came out within the past couple of years. Yeah. I guess the other thing as well to think of is that it depends as well what, what equipment you're playing it on as well. And I'm, I don't want to go into the old audio file, you know, you must spend 20,000 pound on a, on a needle on a record type of thing. You know I mean? I'm just talking about, an affordable kit, you know, you do have to spend a little bit of money, I guess, between speakers and, and a turntable and an amplifier to get some really good sounds. But the the modern um, record players, you know, of that ilk, they're so much better than the standard hi-fis, you know, and hi-fis and, rec, you know, rec turntables from the past are very, very good. 
with the the, the new quality uh, amps that are available, you know, um, at a at a quite an affordable price range. To be honest with you, it does make a massive difference when you're then playing your remastered vinyl, particularly if it's you know the 180 gram vinyl that we that we're all used to now, half speed mastered, all that stuff. You know, it makes a big difference in my opinion i'm sure there are probably a few people listening who would like to know uh what exactly what kind of equipment we have um that we used to you know play these albums back um mine is actually i started off uh when i got my first one i got it a few years ago it was just a, a i guess a late early 90s uh technics turntable that i didn't really like so much it was just all kind of made out of plastic but the current one i have is actually it's a pioneer um i think it's a i think the model number is like pl 12 d mark ii or something like that but the, what i really like about it is it was made in 1976 which of course <laughs> is the year that a certain nice. band we all like started so i, I thought yeah. that was fun um but actually i this one that i have was owned by a single person who bought it brand new in 1976 and took meticulous care of it and it looks brand new it's never been restored uh he's oiled it faithfully for a number of years and i spent about a hundred bucks for it um which i think is great i mean i i think i got a it's i think that's a fantastic deal I, the only thing that i did i did splurge a little bit you know you mentioned needles and i went to um i bought a new needle for it a new stylus from a company called lp gear and i i splurged on their uh their vessel they have their own kind of their own line of of cartridges so i got one of their vessel cartridges which i thought has been fantastic i with the cartridge that came with it i was having some trouble where things would sound a little distorted sometimes so i got that one i put it on there and it has been um i've been it's been great i don't have speaker set up i use headphones i prefer that um but i i mean if you i think you're right that a lot of the modern players are absolutely fantastic and can blow a lot of the older ones right out of the water. Uh, I would just say that if you are on a little bit more of a budget, like I was at the time, you can spend a little less if you can look for that kind of vintage equipment and look for used stuff. Um, and I'm really happy that I did. And unless I hit the lottery next week, I could easily see myself sticking with this one for a really, really long time. But um, what what kind of setup do you guys have? Well, I, I mean, I've got two record players. I've got a really old dance set valve record player. You know, one of those ones that you well, your grandparents would have owned, basically, uh, which was all Valve. I don't play it very often, but, I mean, it's really only for seven-inch singles and whatever. And, of course, it's mono. It's just a mono speaker coming out of the out of the amp. But the, the, the main one I've got now is um, I bought it about 18 months ago. It's um, a Rega, R-E-G-A. It's a U.K. Uh, company, and they make a range of um, – different uh, turntables but they all look the same they you know visually from from the outside they look the same but the i've got the 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 the, the lowest uh, version of of it uh, which was about in dollars about 300 dollars yeah us dollars as uh, the plain r1 and it comes with a carbon cartridge and you know it's it's got a, a direct drive turntable whatever i plug that through a, a little valve amp and um, and then just through a, a set of uh, a set of speakers, and it sounds fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I've seen those turntables Be- online; than- they look gorgeous. They're great, yeah, they're great. You know what? There's loads of turntables like that now. I mean, there there's all different companies make them. I mean, you know, we've got the more famous business companies like Audio Technica from Japan make them, I guess, and you know, you'll get your steeple tones or whatever. 
but um, they're they're great. You know, they're yeah. I mean, three hundred dollars is not a is not a not a, a cheap investment. But to be honest with you, it's if you if you do enjoy your vinyl and you do enjoy listening to music, I think that the you know the, the the number one thing to do is to you know look at your budget and and spend as as much as you can on your turntable, you know, something like that is, is a good investment. Yeah. In my, well, when I got started, I mean, my, I said, my wife bought me a, a record player and it was, she bought one that had speakers actually in it. It was kind of a, a, a good, I think it was actually my brother, um, a good little starter, uh, turntable. Um, and then the funny thing is after I got started, you know, my dad, who was in a generation where he grew up with records at home. Um, and he's kind of a collector like me. He went, all in and now his collection dwarfs mine um and so i convinced him at one point to upgrade to a new record player and i got his audio technica lp 120 um which is a really nice one and i think it's only 200 and something brand new anyways um so it's not their highest level but there definitely are a lot of good choices to start with and i send that through a Marantz, uh, just receiver. And I had an old RC, a really old receiver that my family had used. So recently upgraded because that one died and it made such a big difference having a newer receiver, um, and which has the amp in it. And then a couple of clips speakers. Um, and that's it for now. But, uh, it's, it's, you know, if, it, if you have a, it doesn't cost a ton to have a, a nice setup. Um, and then you just enjoy it. Actually, it's interesting that you talked about your dad kind of joining in. Um, just as a little aside here, my dad was the opposite. Um, when my dad was in his 20s, and I guess up into my age, uh, I'm 36 right now, he had this massive vinyl collection of mostly Beatles stuff. He's a, you know he's into the Beatles the same way we're all into you too. And he told me once recently that um, he... When he was my age, he had the top of the line Thorins, I think is how you say it, record player with massive collection. And I looked it up and it looks incredible. But then he's like, you know, when CDs came out, I, I sold all of it. He sold the record player. He sold the entire uh, collection of records. And he's absolutely kicking himself right now because he's done what your dad also did. And he's gone back and he's been trying to rebuild everything. And he's gotten all of the, you know, the new Beatles and Paul McCartney stuff. But he's, you know, he still talks about how he had all these great records from, you know, the, the 70s and the 80s and even, I guess, the 60s, too, that just are gone now. And um, I think a lot of people did that. I mean, my father-in-law did that. I got a few records that he had left over. Um, but it is funny to see that happen. And there's still, you know, every once in a while, you know, a new collection will flood. But I think a lot of those have either been cleaned out or taken at this point. Um, and so finding some of those rare deals, like you were talking about earlier, is a little tougher. Um, but it is fun. I mean, I like you. I love going out whenever my dad comes to California. There's a lot of shops around here. It's a fun thing we can do together. So I love that aspect of it. That's most of the time when I go shopping. It's probably with him or with somebody in that more sort of for a social familial experience. Uh, but I just I just want to touch real quickly because I on the Beatles since you brought it up and we were talking about quality because it's interesting how they've the recent re-releases of Abbey, or uh, I think yeah Abbey Road or is that one coming up? But the White Album and yeah Sergeant Pepper's and um, and what they did and what Aaron was saying earlier about going back to the um, to the source material and and it's it's really cool to learn how they've done that and is a good motivator to get some of those those cool re-releases because they're going way back they're going further than they went when they originally pressed them 
um, to remaster some of those. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I wonder if you two will ever end up doing something like that. I mean, I, it's, I'm always a little disappointed that they are so hesitant, I guess, to put out extra releases. And, you know, sometimes the only like kind of special vinyl releases we get are either these just colored versions of things that are already out or that occasional fan club, which I think there's only been maybe two on vinyl do you guys think that maybe one day 20 years from now that there's something like what the beatles are doing might eventually happen to a u2 album where it gets completely redone and re-released like that yeah i hope so actually it would be it would be lovely to for them to to want to do something like that because yeah you know when when um george martin's son is it giles his name i think isn't it Giles martin did, did the love album you remember the love album they served the Salel album came out that must be getting on for 20 years now or 15 years ago but when that came out i mean the the quality the sonic quality of hearing all those tracks being remixed and overlaid on against each other and that was a complete you know different concept of of an album i mean i don't think you two would ever go anywhere near down that route but but it would be lovely for them to generally do a you know a complete uh complete remix of some of the songs. I mean, we've had, there was, you know, I was always a little bit disappointed when, was it the best of 1990 to 2000 came out and they were saying that, you know, they've remixed tracks off pop and whatever. <laughs> and I thought to myself, they, they don't sound that much different. <laughs> it wasn't worth the effort. But they are, they're very cautious, aren't they? They're very, very prudent about about doing anything like that. But uh Hopefully, you know, let's let's hope they will do something like that. Cause I do like how they seem to be using their current vinyl releases to include some bonus tracks. Um, they're, unfortunately, they're usually remixes that aren't really quite my style, but I think that could be an option one day if they can, you know, add, uh, if they need to fill up an extra side on a double LP and you get some maybe new versions of things, that would be, that would be a lot of fun. I do wonder how much there really is in the archive as well, because... I mean, to be honest with you, I doubt there isn't that much. I mean, I think, you know, the stuff that was released on the remasters back in 2008, you know, we've got all of those uh, additional songs on war and, uh, you know, a couple on uh, October and whatever. Some of them were just radio sessions or whatever, but absolutely brand new songs that had never been, you know, nobody knew the titles of, nobody knew they even existed. They were very limited. But, you know, I, as you probably know, you two struggle to record albums, don't they? That's... Whilst their albums are brilliant, the one thing they're actually rubbish at is recording recording music. They really struggle, don't they? You know, it was right to the to the, the last minute before they before they are happy to release an album. So I don't think there's probably going to be that much in the archive when, if they do get around to doing a, an archival release in, in years to come. <laughs> I'll be very, I'll be very pleased to be disproved of that. <laughs> I think we all would. <laughs> um, so why don't we uh, get into some of the the questions that we had come in via the at, ask at you two hashtag? We had some questions come in on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Instagram. Um, so we have a we addressed one earlier about uh, or all that you can't leave behind and why it's so hard to find some of those on vinyl as opposed to other ones, but. We had a couple of interesting ones come in, and, and they came from Alan Ivory. And um, I want to start off with those, if we could. He asked, what tips would you give to you 2 fans to guard against being ripped off by dodgy sellers on eBay? He said, surely there are only so many limited editions left that haven't already reached genuine fans, and it's increasingly more difficult to tell the good from the bad. Um, so what kind of what do you do 
I guess this, Aaron, you may be a good person to answer this. What do you do to make sure that you're getting something on eBay that's not um, something kind of shady and it's in the legitimate vinyl release? Well, I, I feel, I mean, I know Alan quite well, uh, Alan Ivory. I, and he, he, you know, he's, he's a very significant collector and uh, he's got a fantastic vinyl collection. I think on eBay, though, I mean, regarding vinyl, I think there's probably less chance of being ripped off buying vinyl as there is with CDs. I mean, CDs now, all these CD promos that appear on eBay, crikey, I mean, they're all fake, obviously. They're, they're, they're not even copies of of originals because the originals don't even exist. You know, all the remix uh, CD promos, whatever. So that's something that you certainly got to be careful with. What I have noticed... Um, when I go through eBay, more and more so, there seems to be certainly a counterfeit market starting to appear on some very limited releases by U2. And one of the ones that comes to mind is um, a white label of A Day Without Me, which has got like a handwritten or, sorry, typewritten, like a typewriter label, a promo. And that certainly exists in its original format, and there's so few copies uh, that would have been released to UK and European radio stations in the day that it's hard to believe that you see so many now on eBay. I mean, there's loads of them all the time. So I think there's certainly a, a starting to be a little bit of a counterfeit market coming up. And I think um, those – I don't think it's, it's not uh, um, just an eBay – uh, a story that I I think I posted about this on Twitter myself recently. I was at a record store in the mall, just my local mall, and it's a reputable record store. They've got a lot of great stuff. And up on the wall, I noticed that they had a copy of Zeropa, and they were asking one hundred and fifty dollars for it. And I'm like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Maybe that's an original one that you know that came out in 1993. Yeah. That's about how much they cost. And it was really high up. And I I you know tried to look to see what was up there, and it said um, it was a twenty. 16 white vinyl limited edition import um which is absolutely a counterfeit record all those colored vinyls that come are imported from from europe and were printed within the past couple years are all counterfeit and i was first of all i was shocked to um find that in a store and not in ebay but the other thing is um one of the things that i use to make sure if i am looking at something online and i want to know if it's real or not i use discogs a lot and i found that Discogs is very upfront uh, because it's a user-based community, and all the information for these releases is vetted and revised by users. That it, they're very clear that if the copy that you have is fake, it will say something like "unofficial" there. And just to be on the safe side, I whipped out my phone, I opened up the Discogs app, and you know checked it for the you know found the imported white vinyl version and it said unofficial and i was like absolutely that means that's a that's a fake one um so i think it's important to know that it's not just ebay or online sellers that can get you i think if you have a store that doesn't know what they're talking about and they they can kind of try to get you too and i was maybe really hesitant about this store because i absolutely know that they sell their records on discogs too and that they use discogs to guide their pricing um so i it made me feel as though they were trying to rip off a little bit which was disappointing yeah but they knew what they were doing they should have known yeah uh but it can happen anywhere it just surprised, surprised me though to be honest with you that people do go onto ebay and do buy like a purple colored war album or something and it'll say it's, it's from czechoslovakia or it could be from iceland or whatever because 
you know, there's so many good discography websites out there nowadays, not just on YouTube, but every every band and every act going, that the information to hand is really, really good. So I think it's, you know, the usual thing, let the buyer beware, to be honest with you. But in some respects, there's even a market now for YouTube fans and collectors to buy unofficial coloured counterfeit vinyl. I mean, you know, it never ceases to amaze me that people are happy enough to... If they if they're happy enough to spend the money, let, let them do so. Whatever, whatever um, makes you happy. But certainly, you you have got to be careful. Actually, sure. I do have a few. Uh, I have on. three of them, and I've never listened to them, and I don't ever intend to listen to them. I actually bought them because I want to use them as decoration one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, like they're going to be hanging on my wall one day when I have the space for them. Because I'm not going to hang up a real one. I'm going to hang up that one that I paid ten dollars for. And then I figured as a nice side effect. If I spent ten or fifteen dollars for it, and I know what it is, and I'm going to treat it appropriately, that's one let one fewer person who may get ripped off down the line. So I felt a little better about it. I, I do. I do feel sorry for people though who go into a bidding war for, say, um, a counterfeit white vinyl or say something like Out of Control on CBS Island. You know, they're they're starting to be counterfeited, and they're quite obviously counterfeited. You know. And the, you'll see people starting spending two hundred, three hundred pound on a on a counterfeit record. That's a shame. But I mean, to be honest with you, I think what what you know what you suggested the use of discogs and and uh, discography websites out there. You've just got to be very cautious and just be careful and make sure make sure that you've got a kosher release in the first place. And the best, the other best way of doing it as well is just get ask the seller to get some photographs sent to you as well. That helps as well, so you can start looking at them a little bit. I also think that rule of thumb that if something seems a little too good to be true, then it probably is too good to be true. So um, sometimes I see those things, and it's like where you see this record that you know may be rare, and the fact that it's coming up on eBay seems like a little weird. So I kind of that always makes me. Um, not that I could afford most of these things anyway, but it, it always just kind of puts my, uh, my radar up. Um, but Alan had a second question that kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier. He asked, is it true that colored releases of all these albums are of inferior quality than the standard black versions? Uh, I don't think so personally, but have any of you ever heard any sort of sonic difference between a, a black, like for example, no line on the horizon with a, the black copy and the clear copy. I mean, to me, they sounded pretty identical. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I I don't think I've noticed any difference. I mean, I think um, the, the the process of making vinyl it comes out black in any case, doesn't it? So it's not like a, it's not like black itself is a special color that has to be put in the dye. But I guess arguably, if you do add anything to the compound in the first place, then there's a opportunity for the uh, quality of the, the of the colored vinyl to be inferior, but. In my experience, when I compared um, the black, you know, the reissued 2008 versions against the more recent coloured versions, I can't see any difference whatsoever. Not in the slightest. Yeah, I've ne- I've never noticed a difference. I think that there is, like, uh, you know, you can read on audio file websites that will allude to something what you were just saying, Aaron. That especially like if there's mixed colours, like the splatter style, that you know somehow it can minimize you know, the, the quality of the compound of the, you know, what they're, the, the actual vinyl that they're mixing, but I don't think it's noticeable by anyone um, unless you're, you know, kind of crazy. I have a theory um, or a suspicion, and this could be completely off base, but I kind of wonder that if, you know, we have 
based on what we all said earlier, we have, you know, we have good vinyl setups, but there are people out there who, as Aaron said, do have um, stereo setups that can cost, you know, 20, 50, even $80,000. I read a, uh, a profile of um, a classical music collector who had a, a stereo system in which just the two speakers alone were $75,000 each oh or gosh. something ridiculous like that. <laughs> so I always wonder, like, you know, if you do have a bleeding edge stereo system with like the absolute top of the line turntable with the top of the line cartridge and you have the top of the line everything that maybe you can hear a difference between the the black vinyl and the colored vinyl and the different imperfections that come with having you know the dye in there that maybe us regular people can't hear um i have no idea <laughs> i think if you have the collections at that level you know i'm uh, either you're fooling yourself or there may be people who's like you know ear canals are so clean and their genetics and hearing are so perfect that they can pick it up. But I feel like we need to be employing those people in like the military or something. Uh, <laughs> there's very few people. Who I think that's actually going to, going to make a difference, but who knows? Hey, maybe there might be somebody listening right now who has something like that at home would be happy to invite all three of us over to their house. Yeah. To, to give it a try. Wouldn't know. that be fun? Prove it to us. Yeah. I want to hear. All right. Um, some other questions that came in about, about prices. And this one is something that I've actually been interested in myself. We have user, a uh, Twitter user at uh, Steza underscore Doza. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Wants to know what a fair price for early U2 would be, especially the U2 3 EP. Uh, I have absolutely no idea, but I'm interested to know that myself. Um, Aaron, do you have any insight about that? Well, I guess when they said the U2 3 EP, then I guess they're meaning the, the numbered limited edition uh, one, I guess, yeah. uh, which is... 40 years old in a few weeks' time. Um, yeah, I mean, the, a fair price nowadays for uh, for a, a U23, um, I would suggest is probably going to be a minimum of $1,500, um, probably with a price up to as much as $4,000 dependent on the, on the number. And there are a number so, of different you know, releases of, of U23, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the the, the U two three on on twelve inch. Um, obviously, there was the, the thousand that were released back in September nineteen seventy nine, and then it's been released at least two or three times um, since then. Because CBS Island themselves, back in the early eighties, they released all of the early singles um, several times over on black vinyl with red labels and whatever, all the colored vinyl, all that came out originally in 1982 and then got repressed again a couple of times through to 1984. But stuff like the U23, I mean, you know, there's not many that exchange hands obviously because, you know, they're, they're obviously quite, uh, they're quite rare. There's only a thousand of them. Um, I think, yeah, the lower the number, obviously, it's going to make a, a, a difference um, if you've got anything unusual about your particular version, um, you know, whether it's autographed or whatever, that could make a difference as well. But uh, yeah, that's that, that's obviously one of the more expensive items for uh, for you two. But you know, one of the things about you two collecting you two, it is quite affordable. You know, if you look at the early singles, "I Will Follow" or um, "A Day Without Me." 11 o'clock TikTok, you can pick them up for, you know, for, for quite low single figure uh, currency on eBay or Discogs. Um, it's usually the only thing that gets the more premium price nowadays is whether the sleeve is in a 
excellent to mint condition. Um, that that's probably where you'll get a little bit of premium. But um, you know, I, I've got record collector. I mean, you you guys, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Record Collector Magazine in America. It's um, a publication that's been devoted to vinyl for the best part of forty years. I think it's got its fourth anniversary. And um, one of the, the the things that they publish every two years is a, a very large, thick book called Record Collector. It's twenty twenty, at the, the latest one. And you know, even something like um, I will follow in mint condition. You know, when you consider it's thirty nine years old, it's ten pound. You know, so with respect, that's an affordable thing to purchase for something so old and in mint condition. You know, if you can. Crikey, if I could find one in mint condition, I'd snap the hand off anybody for £30, let alone 10 You know, um, that, that's really where I'm at now with my early U2 stuff, you know, the stuff that I didn't buy when it came out, you know, pre-1983. I'm, I'm always trying to find a, you know, a better version of a, of a, of a sleeve or whatever. But, um, yeah, the, the, early U2, the early U2 stuff like Another Day with a Postcard, you know that's that's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, certainly, U two three numbered limited edition that's going to cost you a lot of money, and, and you'd expect it to be the case. I think because it, you know it's 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 getting old, and of course a lot of those copies were just thrown away. People wouldn't have known what they had in their hands. That the actually could could lead us into another question here that was asked on Twitter by at um, r diane eight seventy seven. They asked what. What are the rarest U2 releases that are worth paying a little extra money for? Are there anything other than U2-3 or uh, those early singles that are, you know, rare and but might be really cool to have? Well, I know um, she mentioned, I think it was original releases of every U2 album on vinyl she's trying to get. Um, so that there is that uh, Zuropa through you know, uh, how to dismantle maybe, um, period where they're, they're going to cost you a lot more to get the original versions, all the 80s stuff, obviously, and all this stuff more recently, you can get original versions without much trouble. Um, that's my impression. I think probably the rarest one in terms of, um, volume of vinyl pressed is actually the best of 1980 to 1990. That's my understanding, certainly from a UK perspective. Well, that's true. Well, and I, I think um, I think the 1990 to 2000 vinyl, even more so, I think. I think that's the one where I've seen it upwards of $200 if you get the original double double uh, pressing of that. That makes sense what we said earlier. You know, the late 1990s through to the early part of the millennium, the volumes of vinyl worldwide were so low, the demand so low that – Inevitably, that is uh, going to be harder to uh, to find and to, and to and to you know to collect because you know anybody who owns one probably hasn't got any real plans to to uh, sell them because I guess they bought them from a collector perspective as opposed yeah. to you know, that they wanted to as their primary way of listening to a compilation album by you too. You know, I'm sure most people would have just bought the uh, CD for that purpose. Yeah, especially at that time. What about promo copies? Do you guys find that promo copies of things are harder to find than um, like actual releases? Because I every time I go like to a store or something or, or a show that I, I'm constantly finding promotional copies of album, not just YouTube, but uh, of everybody. So I think it, um, I, in my, I've seen that promos are not actually as rare as I would expect them to be. Like I would think if I heard this is promotional, that means it would be one of the rare things to find. 
But in my experience, that hasn't been the case. Is that the same for you? Yeah, definitely the case. Yeah, no, no two ways about it. I mean, there isn't that much promo vinyl press nowadays, obviously. But even the early U2 stuff, you know, like, you, you're familiar with what I mean when I say like a, 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 a label, you know, where they they put the big A on the on the A side so that the person, the DJ would know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I have the, a couple of record on. yeah. You know, I've got a couple of those, and I think to myself, God, these must be as rare as hen's teeth, you know. But in reality, they're only worth 30, 40 pounds. You know, they're not they're not as um, as rare as you expect. And I guess, the diff- again, it goes back to the, the time they're released. You know, at the time, there would have been absolutely hundreds of them pressed for radio stations. It's, it's a bit like the modern times, isn't it, of music? You know, you'll find that a band that you, you like, you know, they, they – they had a, a single that went to number 17 in the charts, and that was probably, they'd say, 1982. In 2019 terms, the, you know, the number of records that were sold to get to number 17 in the charts would probably get you 10 weeks of number one now, you know, if, if time had moved on. You know, so it's all, it's all about the, 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 the volumes, I think, in terms of what makes, what makes the... Uh, the, the item rare, but I agree with you, Brian. I, I, I think a lot of the promos, um, they're not so hard to find. And I think one of the things that I would certainly what I've learned over the years is you have to have patience sometimes. And I've rushed into buying things from day one. And really, you know, you just wait a few days, even weeks or whatever. You, you get them at much lower prices on eBay once the market's... Yeah, one of down. my favorite ever purchases was actually a... Uh, a I, I was at a local store at a farmer's market uh, right up the street from me, and I happened to find they were selling a sealed promotional 12-inch of Where the Streets Have No Name with the, you know, the black island sleeve, and it was $6. <laughs> <laughs> like, gosh, <laughs> a sealed promo for $6. Of course, I, mean, of course I bought it. Um, but that was, I think yeah. that was the moment that I realized that, that you know, they... In my head, those seem like rare things to find, but they're not at all. Um, and I think, you know, going back to this other question, it seems like the rarest things are the things that, you know, were either made in the early days when people didn't know who they were and, like Aaron said, may have thrown some things out or were made during that, you know, 90s, early aughts period where there just wasn't a lot of uh, vinyl being made. So I guess if you happen to have one of those and you didn't pay a whole lot of money for it, then that's that's pretty great, right? I have a confession to make. I have, I've got – I've, um, I've had – over the years, I've had as many as four U23s. I only own one now. I've sold my other ones. But uh, the one I've kept is the one I purchased from my cousin – in Dublin, and I think I bought it from him around 1985, 86, and uh, he sold it to me for five <laughs> Irish punt. Five Irish That's awesome. We're still, we're still speaking to each other, though, so it can't be too bad. <laughs> well, did, just this, all this talk about, um, you know, some of the favorite purchases, I just, I was really curious for each of you, what was either the rarest, either and or the rarest item that you have, or maybe some of the your favorite items in your collection? I'm really curious what you guys, you know, really love. Um, I, I would say that my rarest is just by default has to be that um, I, I'm going back to it for the third time that Record Store Day Songs of Innocence, just because there were only about 5,000 of them made. Um, I really don't have anything other in my collection that is truly rare everything is really common um my favorite 
though. That's that's a tough one. Um, I have to say the one that I enjoy the most and the one that I'm happiest to have is actually probably the uh, the fan club double vinyl of the 1980 show that came out a couple weeks ago, the Live at the Marquee. Um, I absolutely, as a fan of Live U2, and the fact that they don't have very many live albums on vinyl or anything at all uh, makes that one my favorite. So uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> what about you, Aaron? Yeah. I, like, I like that one as well because it's on 10 inch, isn't yeah. it? It's on 10 inch yeah. vinyl. Yeah. I think that yeah. one actually is technically my yeah. the first record I ever had because I just was part of the membership and, and I got it and uh, I didn't play it until I had a record player. Um, I, that brings up, I mean, uh, and we were talking before about counterfeits, you know, bootlegs is kind of an interesting side quest for certain collectors. I've run into a couple of live early bootlegs, um, that were obviously pressed by somebody with like their unique, you know, covers. Um, so I have one, I think it's live in Cork from the Joshua Tree album area. It's a, du- it's a double album. Um, that's kind of fun cause it's just straight you know, just live. I think, you know, the story is always that there's some recorder at the, at the thing that, you know, records his own version and then they go and press it um, illegitimately, but that's kind of fun. But one of my favorites, uh, I found a, a, a couple of 12 inch um, pop era singles. One is the MoFo remixes and one is discotheque. And it was just, it was, I wasn't looking in the YouTube section. It was just randomly in the electronic section, which I normally don't look at at a record store. And so that was like, okay, I need to look a little bit more deeper in some of these places. And it was fun to just find that because I love that era. Um, and I feel like, you know, it gets a little bit maligned by the band or some fans. So I love I love that I found a couple of those pieces. So that was just kind of one of those fun hunt stories. Wait, so you're saying you found the pop singles in the Electronica section of the record store? I found uh, the MoFo remixes, yeah, in the, in the Electronic version of this record store. And then I had a friend in Japan who she sent me um knows me very well sent me the discotheque uh 12 inch single and also sent me a japanese version of uh the do they know it's christmas um album you know that bono sings mm-hmm. on which is just kind of a, a hoot to listen to uh so those are just fun that's cool how about you aaron what i what i quite like in terms of my collection is actually the early u2 singles i'm, I'm very fond of pulling out 11 o'clock TikTok or the double pack of two hearts beat of one or fire double pack, whatever. I quite, I, I like the seven in, early seven inch singles released in the UK. Um, I don't know. probably just, it feels like they were my firstborn, you know, the first, the first YouTube uh, stuff that I purchased. So yeah, they're the ones I, I quite enjoy the most of. And they're, you know, they're no great value to them. They're fairly inexpensive to be honest with you. But um, I do they probably just create nice memories. Yeah. Don't that they? reminds me, one of the, the things that I'm most upset with myself about is that um, I want to say back in the spring, I was at a, a record show and I found a an original single of um, 11 o'clock TikTok and it was $20. And I don't remember my reasoning at the time, but I didn't buy it. I spent that money on something else at the show. Um, and I thinking back on it now, like that was possibly the dumbest thing I've ever done as a YouTube fan was not grabbing that while I had the chance because I've never seen it again. Um, but I can guarantee that if I'm ever shopping somewhere out, you know, looking at records and I find that, I'm probably going to pick it up then. But uh, in the meantime, I'll just have to take it as a lesson learned, you know. Yeah, I've been there, done that <laughs> yeah. myself. Yeah. The one other question I wanted to ask was about uh, picture discs. Um, 
I know we do. Have, I know there are a couple that kind of came out, but what do you what do you think of picture discs? Do you think they're a, a cool thing or kind of? A, I know some people think that they're unnecessary and annoying. So I was just curious to know what you guys thought of them. Well, I mean, from sonically, they're not they're not so good, are they? Really, because they're they're, they're difficult to to press in any case. I mean, they've always been a, a marketing uh, record, as far as I'm concerned, a bit of, a bit of a novelty. I mean, you two haven't released many official ones in in the day i mean they've released the pride one war came out on as an album on one um the unforgettable fire of course had a shaped picture disc one so there's not been many released by you two obviously with the record store day releases we've had the lights we've had lights at home and uh, what was the other one Red yeah, Mining Town. Really, yeah so I don't think I don't think you two have had a big history of releasing picture discs, but I mean I've got quite a few picture discs from bands like The Police and stuff like that, and David Bowie. I collect all the latest David Bowie ones that have been out for the last few years. But I mean sonically they're rubbish. You know you 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 play them, they sound terrible, they, and they generally do sound terrible. I think it's just the way they have to be made, aren't they? Because they've got a they've got an insert in between, and they're, they're made differently to the. A standard uh, it, for me they fall under that category of it's kind of a cool thing to have so i you know i did think it was it was neat when they came out with it for record store day and i was like this is you know it was a cool thing and i was happy to have bought it like you said about david bowie i recently found the the seven inch picture disc of heroes and that's one of my favorite songs ever so i was like this is incredible i want to buy this just to have it um but i i agree with you i don't think they really don't sound so great and i know that there are also some counterfeit versions out there or unofficial if you want to call them that of picture discs of yeah. things like boy sure. and, and pop i've seen um, also picture discs of how to dismantle an atomic bomb and i considering how the official ones don't sound up to par i can't imagine how an unofficial picture disc might sound too you know yeah absolutely but uh, but the, i think those those early new two ones they're they're getting harder to find. The unforgettable fire single one is an interesting one. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, I've 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 got um, two copies. But the, most copies are what they call tea stained. So on the A side, it's all very like brown and discolored, like mud, like muddy water. Muddy water is is infected in between. It's called a tea stain. Um, and the other one is actually in perfect condition. It's it's never changed. And I, I think it's obviously something to do with the the chemicals and the glues. I guess over the years have uh, have made it made it. Is that over. the shaped one you're talking about? The what, the unforgettable fire that's shaped like you two. I always thought shaped, that that was yeah. not real. I didn't know that was an official yeah, release. Too. Yeah, that's the thing about picture discs. I'm always dubious when I see them in stores because I don't know which ones are real, except for the most recent couple of of things. So they don't. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. They probably don't sound great, so I always kind of steer clear when I see them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I whenever I go to record fairs or even just looking on Discogs or eBay, the thing I associate pictures and you two with are the, those interview mm. interview things that used to have eighties or whatever. You know, I've got a few of those over the years, um, but they, you know, they're 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 they're, they're novelty, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. They're they're a niche. A bit like, a bit like coloured vinyl. You know, you can spend a fortune on them. Um, and you've just got to be, again, just got to be careful that you don't go down the trap and end up buying a, a counterfeit one. But as I say, it's very difficult to know, isn't it? If you, if you're, uh, 
you know, if you if you fall in love with something and you think I must have that, and you know, you got you say you can spend a lot of money. And uh, I think it's great that we wrong. have you know the ability now to go to places like this with our phones and be able to look them look things up on the spot. Because uh, I remember when I was a kid and going to the store when I was you know collecting more of the the, the live bootleg. Uh, CDs and stuff like that. It was always hard to remember, like, you know, which ones do I have? Which things do I, you know, is this something that I'm interested in? And now being able to just whip out my phone and check out either my Discogs profile to see if it's a copy that I have already or to look at my, my you know, my my own spreadsheet of, of bootlegs that I have. Um, it's great because if I'm not sure, I can just open up a Google window in the store and do some research and see if it's worthwhile. And that's something that we may not have had access to, you know, ten years ago. It's um, it makes it easier for us now to do the due dil- to do the due diligence on in the moment instead of just kind of taking a risk on something. Um, so I've, I've definitely made made use of that myself when I'm out shopping. Yeah, that's principally the reason I created a spreadsheet because I used to come home. From a record fair and go, oh, I don't believe this. I've already got this version. I've already got this. You know, and you, you end up buying the same copy again. I've done that before. I've done that. I did that once, uh, even though I had it in my Discogs profile. I just didn't look carefully enough, and I ended up buying the same. Uh, it was a seven inch of um, Stay, and I ended up buying a second one accidentally. But yeah, that's okay. Well, the only thing you'd hope for is that you've got like a mint sleeve or something to make it. I actually, yeah, that was the, that was the silver lining. I was able to take the sleeve from one and stick it on the other one. And I had a, you know, a better one. So, uh, I'll take it. Yeah. Mix and match and then sell the, sell the one day. day. I'm going to hang on. I figure I'll hang on to it just in case you never know. Uh, it's not like, I don't think I'd get very much for that one if I were to try to sell it. So it's, doesn't take up that much space either as a seven inch, so it's not that big of a deal, you know. All right. Yeah. We were talking about um, colored vinyl, and I, I think is it October and Rattle and Hum? I can't remember now. I know it was October in, and Pop. In a few weeks. There you go. Yeah, so October is supposedly pop, at least yeah. coming out on cream vinyl, which. Should be a nice color, and then Pop gets the bright orange, which I'm, I think that's going to be cool. That seems like a, an appropriate color. I think they've done a really good job of choosing the color of the vinyl to match like the color scheme of the album or just the feeling of the yeah. album. Like October on cream sounds perfect. You know, I can't think of a better color to put that on. And I thought the unforgettable fire in the wine color was absolutely fantastic. It looks brilliant. Uh, they did a great, they did a great uh, version of that. But we we had a question on Twitter from uh, at Sir Edward Gray, aka Clayton Schofield. It's a great question. He talks about the five remaining albums. I haven't been officially released in colour, so obviously it doesn't actually refer to October and Pop because he obviously recognised that they're coming out soon in, in colours. But that leaves us with Boy, War, Rattle and Hum. Acton Baby, and all that you can't leave behind. Now, bearing in mind that there's obviously already been some colours released um, for the for the for the previous albums. What colours would should they use for each of those albums? Boy is a good example. Now, I think Boy would probably best come out in silver. And of course, you know the album cover is predominantly white, but there's that silver border, isn't there, around the Around the around the cover, so, so I, I would have said gray, but then you said silver, nice. and I think silver sounds better. 
Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Great, great. Maybe with like yeah. a cool great little uh, marble finish on it would look kind of neat. Um, but then again, I don't like, like I think uh, what Eric said earlier, I don't know if that marbled vinyl affects sound or not, but yeah, that would look, that would be a nice look. I would, I would like that. That's kind of, well, it's kind of hard all of these because boy, war, all that you can't leave behind, even rattle and hum. I mean, as far as when you're looking at the covers, they're all kind of like black and white. The only, the only thing you, is the is the logo color so rattle and hum is is that like a yeah like a rust orange color the actual yeah, that would right probably now. be the one that you'd identify some pressings that. that color is actually closer to brown like Same i have that. two copies of rattle and hum and one of them is that orangey color yeah. and another one is more like a brown so i could see it coming out on a brown vinyl as opposed to orange because that's close to the, the pop color yeah, yeah let me look on my original rattle and hum right here and see yeah, yeah this is kind of a kind of a, a brownish almost dark tan sort of a thing i think that would make sense and it kind of fits the aesthetic of the album i think war would almost have to be on another variation of red i know they already have two red ones and that the uh the how to dismantle an atomic bomb vinyl is pretty bright but uh if they can find a shade in between there i you know because red is the color i associate with war and that may just be because of i, I also associate it closely with under a blood red sky um but that's what I would want. Axton Baby, that's a hard one because, of course, we've got a multicolored cover of 16 photographs. Yeah, that one seems like Again. that one should be like a speckled, you know, something or other. One. How about yellow? Yeah, yellow would work. I think, I think again, so, yeah. the logo in yellow. And it's uh, different enough from the gold that the Joshua yeah. Tree came out on that it wouldn't, you know, it's a different color. But then we get back yeah. to all that you can't leave behind and that, you know, I agree with Eric that that's, that's going to be a rough one because they'd have to go back to the gray. Unless they did, um, you know, two different shades, like a maybe a lighter gray for boy and a darker gray for all that you can't leave behind. Um, that would be another good. Uh, that would be good with a clear option, but uh, they already did that, and I guess they're not going to want to mm. repeat. And of course, the white one was the yeah, Songs of Innocence. white too, yeah. Um, although they've done, well, I guess not. I was just going to say, like, uh, Zuropa is blue, and then. Um, songs of experience is blue but songs of experience is i think they call it cyan and it's definitely more of a transparent color it's got a little bit of a shimmer to it so whereas uh zeropa is just that solid color you know talk talking of um Zeropa, you see i would have thought purple was the was the color more that's right i thought so oh, yeah. i i remember I mean, being yeah, surprised about that that. that would have been a good choice hey maybe octon baby could end up being purple i think it's got some hmm. purple on the cover right that could fit yeah, yeah i think that would um, all right. I'm look. I don't see if we had any other questions that came in that we didn't address. So, uh, the real messing asked about rattle and hum. So I know rattle and hum was, um, re-released not too long ago, but that hasn't gotten any sort of remasters or special editions or vinyls. Um, obviously, you know, it's, I think it's probably impossible to know exactly why that is the case. Um, my personal feeling on it is that I kind of feel like the band may not want to make as big of a deal out of Rattle and Hum, considering how it's been perceived throughout the years, and that they may just be content to you know make a new pressing and let it come out quietly and not do a big deal about it. Um, do you guys think differently at all? I mean, yeah, it could be remastered quite easily and, and just re-released, but... I suppose the whole thing about releasing Rattle and Hum again is you'd have to go look to to do something with the with the the film itself. You know whether you release a, a brand new version 
um, of the film at the same time. And you've got the complications, haven't you, as well, where you've got a soundtrack, uh, you've got a, a live soundtrack to a film where some of the songs are on the LP. Then you've got the actual film soundtrack where those live songs aren't on the LP. So it, there may be a rights issue issue uh, with that, I guess. I don't know. I, I must admit, when the fan club released, God, was it God Part 2 about two years ago? Did you do 3D? Remixes, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, 3D. Sorry, yeah, uh, remix. I thought that was kind of a suggestion that Rattle and Hum was about to be re-released because it was for the 30th anniversary and everything. So, But unfortunately, that hasn't materialised to date. Um I think it. But, yeah. I think it's right for it. I mean, I think enough time has passed, you know, to that you know fans love it now, and like all the. I think what you were just saying, you know, there could be those rights issues. I hadn't considered that, but I'd love to have. I mean, I don't know. It would have to be like a triple or quadruple, um, you know, disc version to get the the movie versions uh, on vinyl, and then I don't know all the B sides from the singles and. And those sorts of things put all there together. Though some of those, I think, came out uh, perhaps on the Joshua Tree um, version. So I'm not sure which ones would make it or not. But I think it's. Right I don't think it. those are going to come out. I don't think Rattle and Hum will come out in any format like that. But I, I'm convinced that Rattle and Hum and the other four like will come out at some point in colored vinyl. They seem to be putting a couple out every six months or so. So uh, at some point in the spring, I wouldn't be surprised if Rattle and Hum was the next round of it. Maybe even with Octung Baby because they came next to each other and they're so very different. And at least in my mind, I put them together because I, I always think it's interesting to hear that sonic difference between Rattle and Hum and then two years later, Octung Baby. And they, they're, a, they're a weird bookend and they kind of, at least for me, they go together because of how different they are. So I could see them being put out at the same time. Again, in the spring, maybe. Uh, that would be really nice. Yeah. I guess the, 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 you know the band have been so active, haven't they? The last four or five years, we've you know two albums, we've had lots of record store day releases, we've had you know anniversary releases, we've got these coloured vinyls coming out. Um, there's been obviously the, the you know there's the songs of experience DVD to be released, the Joshua Tree 2017 tour DVD release to happen. I think it's probably just it's such a busy time that, again, it's like looking for a window of opportunity. And you can flood the market so much that it will just get lost in the in the general marketplace, even for U2 fans. So, you know, there's, there's got to be a point where, you know, where things quieten down. And I think it probably will then get its re-release. Uh, and, and I do worry a little bit that we are getting to that point because, you know, there has, has been a vocal minority of fans on social media who see these vinyl releases as a way for the band to make money or that it's kind of a shameless cash grab. Um, I mean, I guess I get it, but at the same time, people are still going to buy these uh, regardless. And I'm happy I'm going to buy them and I'm going to do it very happily. And there may come a time where I'm like, hey, guys, this is enough. You're killing me here. But uh, it does seem as though it, it may be approaching. And I hope that they are aware of that and that they're not going to do too much too quickly. So I'm OK with them spreading this out a little bit if it's going to it's going to mean that we're not going to flood the vinyl market and we're not going to make people sick of going out and rebuying um, 
vinyl releases that they may already have. Um, so I, I'm I'm okay with the way it's been going lately. I think I think I think so far you two have managed to to um, meet the market demand. And yeah, I think I mean there probably is a small minority on on Twitter and Facebook complaining. But at the end of the day, crikey, nobody's forcing you to buy it. At the end of the day, I think what's important is that. The quality of the materials, whether we're talking sonically or the artwork, and even the special edition stuff, because we're not even talking about you know you know take the songs of experience uh, box set that came out or the Joshua Tree 30th anniversary stuff. When you look at the quality and the innovation of what they've put together, it's blimmin' good. I have to say, it's really good, and it's it's it's. It's not a rip-off price. There's plenty of artists out there, and I don't want to name them, but there's one in particular I can think of that I do collect, and their latest release is just an absolute rip-off price. But, you know, from a U2 perspective, again, I don't think the prices are particularly outrageous. I think they they're, they're generally would be perceived as being good value for money and, 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 and worthwhile. Yeah, I think the um, that Joshua Tree box set, that you mentioned was actually, I thought that was a really good deal. I mean, I think it was, I think I spent a hundred was $150, uh, which is a lot of course, and sounds like a lot. But yeah. when you think about the fact that we got out of there, seven different, seven LPs, even those, you know, some of them are double albums, like double Joshua tree or whatever. Um, but the fact that it came with pictures and that absolutely gorgeous book of edges photography, that not only is a nice book, but it's a high quality book and a really nice box and, when you put all that stuff together, it's not bad. And they're not really, I don't get the feeling when I bought that, that even though I spent a lot of money and it kind of hurt me a little bit to spend that money, I didn't feel like it was wasted or that they took too much from me or that I was taken and I didn't feel like a chump basically for spending it. I felt it was appropriate. And the thing with some of these is that like that one particularly, I think it was like 180 when it was originally announced. If you can, you know, take a deep breath and wait a few months, often they go down significantly. I think you can still find that one for less than like a hundred dollars or something. And so oftentimes they, they, you know, they get, those that are super excited to buy it right away. But if you give yourself some time, oftentimes you can get these things at a significantly cheaper price and still get a brand new version. Oh, absolutely. I got the, I waited, I want to say eight months to get the, the blue songs of experience deluxe box set, which was $80 when it came out. And I found it on Amazon for 20 brand new, uh, all those months later. And I'm like, well, I, you know, for $20, I'm absolutely going to buy it. So that's, that's great advice. Um, I know it's, I think a lot of people, when they see these things, they hear limited edition, but oftentimes U2 doesn't really, or the I, more specifically, I guess the record company doesn't really tell us what limited edition means. And I think for these new colored ones that are coming out, they're saying limited edition, but it's not like it's 5,000 or 10,000. I think some of the numbers that I've seen online are something around 30,000 um, copies of this being printed, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, so I do think sometimes when they use that term limited edition, it's misleading because there are a lot of them and they're not all going to sell immediately because there aren't 30,000 mm-hmm. U2 fans with who listen to vinyl clamoring to buy them. Um, so that's, you know, patience is absolutely a, a great approach there and you can get some really good deals if you just wait. Absolutely. I think, you know, from a collector perspective, the only uh, box sets that's certainly increased in value the only one, 
has probably been the most expensive one, which is the Uber oh, Deluxe yeah. version of Acton mm-hmm. Baby, which uh, is like a small suitcase, to be honest with you. And it's it's like a magician's drawers, you know, all these little drawers you pull out, you've got your glasses, you I mean that that is something now that if you see that on uh, eBay or Discogs or whatever, certainly it's appreciated in value. I don't mean by very much. I mean, you know, I'm not talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but it's certainly one that is probably uh, going to become more collectible in years to come, for sure. Um, but I totally agree with what you said, Brian. You know, if you have some patience, you can wait a little time and don't have to have it from day one, then you can um, you can save yourself a small fortune. I know certainly <laughs> I could have saved myself a small fortune. The only time I, this is not a U2 specific thing, but I did. Um, I'm also a huge fan of Damien Rice. And uh, he recently, and by recently, I mean like maybe a year and a half ago, put out his um, his first album, O, in this limited edition that came book and was signed by him. And I wanted that one so bad. Yeah. Uh, but that really was a legit limited edition. I think there were only a thousand of them made and they were all hand numbered. And I couldn't make it happen. They all sold out. But I do not see you two going the route of making a release like that like i don't see them saying we're going to re-release uh boy for its 50th anniversary but we're only going to make a thousand copies and you know when they're gone they're gone um because i don't know that there's enough money for them in it for them if they do it that way i I feel like we're not going to have that sort of situation anything that they put out is going to be enough for everybody who wants it um which does mean that you know like you said, they're probably not going to appreciate in value over time, and um, they're going to be available when you want them. Yeah, and I could be wrong about that. I mean, if they did put put out a thousand, like it's just something that's only limited to a thousand, I would still, of course, probably try to get it. But I just don't see it. One thing I would say about you two and the vinyl, um, just reflecting on the conversation we've had for the last hour or so, it, it is great that that vinyls made a comeback and. To be honest with you, I think if vinyl hadn't made a comeback like it has, I probably wouldn't be listening to vinyl as much as I do now. I mean, I, I virtually nearly everything I listen to, if you know, if I'm at home, I, I mean, you know, I've moved away from listening to my iPod of music or putting on CDs or streaming whatever downloads. I just I just put on records all the time. They're in the background all the time, and the and my wife is doing the same. The kids are doing the same. You know, and it, the relationship you have with vinyl is like so different to any other music format, in my opinion. And and that's what's great about listening to your favorite band, your favorite artists as well. It really cements that relationship, you know, flipping the, the, the record out of the sleeve, placing it onto the, onto the platter, putting the needle on the record, flipping it over when the A side's finished. It's such a, a, a wonderful feeling. And that's the great thing about vinyl collecting and more so anything else is that relationship you have with the music. I feel like it makes you work for it a little more. Um, I kind of go through the extra step where I have like a, I have a little brush and I clean off the stylus when I flip it over just to kind of make sure there's no junk on there. Uh, I also, and something that I find fun and my wife makes fun of me for it, um, when I buy older records and you know you pick up some records from the 70s or 80s they've been sitting in someone's basement for a while they're they're dirty you know and that's not necessarily great for your um for your stylist so i bought a uh, a disc cleaner not one of those fancy vacuum kind but it's um what's it called it's called a spin clean so just a little plastic tub 
you put a little bit of um, solution in there that you buy from them and you, you dip the, the record in there. It's got brushes on the inside and it gets all of the, the dirt and the dust and, you know, 30 years worth of uh, paper buildup from those inner sleeves out. Hmm. Uh, and I actually, I find it really relaxing when I get, um, if I have a stack of records that I, that I have and just to kind of take a half an hour to, to clean them so that they sound nicer when I play them. Um, but then again, like you said, that makes me appreciate it more when I put it in because it's not just something that I went to the store and I bought the CD and I just popped it in and I'm ready to go. Or I didn't just click a couple of buttons and it pu- comes up on my screen and plays. I had to work harder to get that there and it makes you kind of appreciate the money that you spent and it makes you appreciate the music better. I also, I really do appreciate that it's changed the way I've listened because I can't skip stuff anymore. Even with my favorite albums, like I love Octung Baby is probably my favorite album ever, but there would still be times where I'd listen to it in the car or have it playing on a CD or through Spotify at home where if I'm like, Hey, I just really don't feel like listening to mysterious ways today. I'm going to hit skip and go on to the next one. And you just can't do that on vinyl. Like it forces you to sit down and appreciate the entire album and listen to the entire album the way that it was supposed to be heard by the artists. So I think we've gone through all of, uh, all of the questions that people sent in. Um, um, probably about time to wrap this up. So uh, any last words uh, from either of you about vinyl or your collections or you two in general? Well, the one thing I'll say is don't throw it away. Keep it. Same with CDs. Keep them. I've, I've kept all mine. They'll make a comeback, I guarantee, one day. And enjoy your music. Play your music. That's the important thing. Don't store it away. I've been guilty of that in the past where I've put all my stuff up in the attic and, you know, you never see it from, from one year to the next. But music's there for a reason. I agree. I think uh, I agree. Just uh, just enjoying it and um, focusing on the music is is what makes it fun. And no need to feel any other pressure or um, uh, it's it's just that it's just uh, just enjoying the music and um, you know enjoying your collection. If you don't enjoy it, don't you know don't feel the pressure and and uh, do what you love. I would say those same things, and rather than repeat it a third time, I guess I would just add for anybody who's listening that if you. You know, if you have any more questions about anything that we've talked about, or you, maybe you find something in your travels and um, you have a question about it, or you're not sure what to do, I would just say feel free to um, you know, maybe tweet us at at you too, and um, we'll be happy to help out as best we can. Um, I hope this was a good uh, experience for everybody who's listening in that they got a lot of uh, good information out of it. Um, I had a lot of fun. I didn't, we don't get a lot of opportunities to sit and talk to each other as much as we, we should or as much as we would like to. So uh, this was, this was like a good time. It, it, I'm looking at the screen right now, and it says an hour and 33 minutes that we've been recording. But to be honest, it feels like maybe 15 or 20. <laughs> so I hope we get to do it again soon. So um, on that note, I guess we're just going to turn this back over to Chris. Um, see you all next time.